If the nation is to have a so-called green future, many scientists and engineers believe more nuclear power generation will be part of the equation. Nukes are expensive to operate, but researchers at the Argonne National Laboratory think they've found a way to use artificial intelligence to drive down costs. For more, we turn to Argonne's principal nuclear engineer, Roberto Poncioli. Mr. Poncioli, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. There are lots of complications in operating nuclear power plants. Tell us what you're looking at here with respect to artificial intelligence. The idea is that in the last few years, nuclear industry is, uh, you know, in terms of profitability, is not doing great. I mean, one late 2018 study said that more than one third of the units is either unprofitable or scheduled to close. So the point is that the Department of Energy is trying to identify solutions to improve profitability, so to help nuclear, because as you said, nuclear better be part of the equation if we want a green future. And, uh, and in particular, and this is true for both for the currently operated units and the future units, so advanced nuclear reactors that might be, we, we would like to be deployed in, uh, in the current, in, in, in the power grid. So now the point is that there are many ways you can try to pursue to reduce the capital cost and stuff. But currently what we are focusing on is trying to reduce the operation and maintenance cost. So trying to limit the cost associated to the operation and the maintenance intervention. So the the, the spirit, the idea here is try to use the artificial intelligence or artificial AI algorithms to try to introduce elements of autonomy and automation in the operation of a nuclear unit. So to try to delegate to algorithms lower level error-prone repetitive tasks that are currently taken care of by human operators and to try to increase the awareness of operator in the situational awareness of operator. What I'm trying to say is that low-level things, let's have algorithms taking care of that, and let's have human operators doing more interesting stuff, more important stuff, and having a more supervisional role in the operation of a unit. What are some of the the operations that could be applied here that would free up people from repetitive tasks and so on? As you said, when you have to operate a nuclear unit, nuclear unit is an incredibly complicated system. As we said, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of sensors, of lights everywhere. And so it's really based on teamwork and it's a very complicated job, you know, taking care of the, uh, for example, the performance of components. If a component is degrading, you got to be aware of that before taking an action or if uh, if you got to do some kind of power transits now there is the penetration of renewables right so the demand is fluctuating the renewables are fluctuating and you got to try to address these demand fluctuations okay and you got to try to adjust the power output of the unit accordingly and that's not uh, so straightforward right and as i said before the operation of nuclear unit is the result of a teamwork because there are operators uh, both technicians on side and people in the main control room that got to talk together. And this kind of uh, communication protocols, uh, now it's based on people talking to each other. But uh, what if uh, we can have algorithms helping these tasks and favoring the coordination of all these aspects? And when I say aspects, I mean the diagnostics, the control, and the decision-making. We are speaking with Roberto Poncioli, Principal Nuclear Engineer at Archon National Laboratory. The information that you have put out on this talks about just simply 
having artificial intelligence give a clue as to when a sensor might be ready to fail and therefore you can replace it instead of having people test them and so forth. That seems like a pretty mundane operation, but what do you figure something like that could save a year in the operation of an average plant, if that's even a calculable number? I can give you a number. You know, usually, uh, because as we said, the sensors, like every other component, degrades, uh, and so the sensors are subject to periodic maintenance, mm. right? Uh, every while you get a check that your sensor are not biased, are not off, uh, the accuracy and everything. And, you know, there is a study that for me was it was real astonishing when, I realized, when they said in the study that uh, when they checked sensors, uh, they check all the sensors kind of, but like 5% of these sensors needs maintenance. The other 95%, they're just fine. So it's a very repetitive, time-consuming task. And one of the thing is, uh, how about we can have a an algorithm telling us, hey, man, this sensor is off. you got to do something about these sensors. But all the other ones, they're working just fine. So don't waste time on that. And the reason why our research activity is focused on sensor is because we were thinking, in this world, we make decisions based on sensors. And if we have a very integrated system, okay, when you have sensors, telling you what's going on and you make a decision and you take a control action. And if you, all this uh, circuit is so integrated, if you commit a mistake at the very beginning, it kind of propagates very quickly everywhere. So if your sensor give you a wrong reading, man, your diagnostics is going to be off, your decision are going to be off and your control action can be really ineffective or even worse, dangerous. Sure. And in the larger sense of knowing what operational level a reactor should have to respond to what is demanded of it on the grid, it seems like the AI could then go further beyond the perimeter of the plant and look at weather patterns, wind and sun patterns, especially if you're trying to fill in with very unreliable sources like solar and wind, which is nevertheless policy for so many grid operators, that the AI could look at a lot of factors in the environment to say it's likely we're going to need more power in seven hours because there's a cloud coming or whatever the case might be. That's so true because, you know, at the moment there are there is another project I'm involved in where basically we are trying to optimize the installed capacity of the units. So what I'm saying is that I know the pattern of the sun, the pattern of the wind, and the predictions for future demand. So given that we would like to exploit as much as we can wind and so and sun power so what is the optimal installed capacity so that's true if you have to build a new unit from scratch but it's also true as you said if you already have a unit and i gotta determine the best course of action in the next few hours in the next few days because as everybody know nuclear is a kind of slow dynamics right so if you change power then you cannot like go up and down like a roller coaster okay you gotta stay there for a bit so you gotta think in advance what you're gonna do and what's the optimal decision and definitely all this data okay all the pattern recognition uh, research uh, it's just so helpful to optimize the operation of the unit uh, in the next few hours or few days now the argon national laboratory has this knowledge is there a way to get it promulgated say to the nuclear industry and to those, even the larger community of people that are thinking about what the future of the grid will be and the need for the nation's growing power requirements over the next years and decades. Yeah, totally. I mean, our national laboratory is currently pursuing a lot of research in this sense. In our 
division in our group, uh, we've been working for years uh, on control, operation, diagnostics, uh, uh, optimization and stuff. And uh, definitely we have a lot of contacts with utilities and the Department of Energy. And uh, that's a very cool part because uh, we are working on uh, real problems. So we ask utilities, hey, what's your problem? And we're trying to intervene and to share our know-how and our experience uh, just so to tackle this everyday problem that now in the recent days and year and time, you know, they are getting more and more important. Sure, we've got to charge those Teslas somehow and I can't do it on the grid we've got if there's too many more of them. And just a final question in the larger sense of, let's say, the nation and policy and things come together and that there is a movement to actually install new reactors. Could the process of siting them and proving the efficacy of the locations and so forth, which sometimes takes decades and that's why they never happen, could that be improved, do you think, with AI at some point? Well, uh, in terms of policy, I mean, it's not really my area of expertise, so I'm not sure I can express some smart opinion. What I can tell you is that uh, this uh, architecture that we've been working on, that we are trying to develop, uh, basically, is going to be really helpful for advanced reactor concepts, uh, in particular, with respect to my the project I'm talking about here, uh, it's about uh, uh, the advanced an advanced reactor coupled with storage, you know, with a battery basically. And so the more the system is complex, the more you're going to need an autonomous operation because the sequence of, uh, you know, tasks uh, is, uh, you know, is complicated and large and everything. So what I'm trying to say here is that uh, this approach is going to be so beneficial for advanced reactor and definitely is going to help deploying this new technology. Roberto Poncharoli is Principal Nuclear Engineer at Argonne National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. The pleasure was mine. Thanks a lot for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. 
Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say, there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with an, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. 
Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, 
So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.